Imagine That Studios and Karu Studios in association with Harper Voyager Books presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 2 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Sweet people. Oh, that sounds bloody haughty now, doesn't it? <clears throat> no, no, no. Thank you all. It truly is just an honour to be nominated. <laughs> oh, that is just an outright bloody lie. Miss Braun, exactly what are you doing? Practicing my acceptance speech. Your what? Oh, go on, Welly. Did you not hear? The Ministry is being honoured at DragonCon this year. Really? That's the event in the Americas, isn't it? I suppose we should be in attendance, lest we offend our presenters. Oh, I do hope they ask Bruce Boxleitner to present one of our categories. Age like a fine pinot he is. Wait, hold on. Is that why we've been so long between lost case reviews? Well... Yes, and before you know it, DragonCon, Saturday, 4pm in the Hyatt's Regency 5 ballroom will be upon us. I had to get my nails done, my hair done, a fitting for a proper dress, a proper baldric... Baldric? This is an award ceremony, not combat. Maybe to you, mate. Really? Is one gent truly... Do not question the scarecrow in my presence. Ever. A Trick of Strong Imagination by Alison Grower Winter, 1893 She kicked again, and the wind rushed in her ears. This time, no mistakes. The trapeze lifted her up, and she tucked her knees in and she flew, Her stomach lurched, her vision blurred, she was up, higher than she had ever been. She straightened out as soon as she felt herself fall. No, Alita, not yet! Her timing had been off. Again. Althea reached anyway, but just grazed her father's fingertips. She continued to fall. Her arms flailing, her vision coming back into focus as she accelerated to the ground. All right, Galway! Althea Galway sat up sharply at the sound of the ministry director's voice, her exhausted eyes widening to an expression of sobriety and innocence. Had she been dozing? She hoped not. Yes, Dr. Sound, she answered. The portly, mustachioed head of affairs within the ministry arched a graying brow at her. You seem a bit peaky, that's all. Feeling well? Certainly, Dr. Sound. She nodded. I'm quite well. Better give your eyes a rest just the same, said Sound. Staring at papers all day, puttering with that analytical contraption will do you in. 
You may be the fastest reader in the ministry, but even savants such as yourself must take a little time to rest the eyes, you know. Keep up your health. Someone's got to read through all this, sir, said Althea, with a touch of regret. The stacks of newspaper clippings, telegrams, notes, and pages across her desk were only just beginning to become overwhelming, but it wasn't as though there were a miraculous machine that could sort and file and draw conclusions for her. There was the analytical engine in the archives, but of course it had other duties. Besides, she would have to set up appointments with the archivist, and it had also been told that he was rather particular when it came to his domain within the dungeon. Were there such a machine to do this kind of fact-checking and note-taking, certainly it would take less time, but Althea would be out of a job. I insist, said Sound. Go have a walk. Take off early, if you will. The fresh air will do you wonders, I'm sure. It may be the dead of winter, but a constitutional always does right by me. Althea pressed her lips together and nodded reluctantly. Sound smiled affably and continued on past her towards the lift to his office. The other agents were carrying on as usual, careless and bold, as was only to be expected of agents of their caliber. It was painfully clear to Althea that they were deeply unsuited to a sedentary office life, and that their true talents lay elsewhere. This was what made them field agents. When she started at the ministry, Althea had actually preferred the quiet security of being indoors, fetching tea, filing paperwork. It was the polar opposite of her childhood experience, traveling with her parents' sideshow, performing for crowds and keeping secrets within the family. The longer she stayed at the ministry, however, the more she felt that she wanted to be out there, making a difference for the good of the empire, rather than sifting through memorandums and newspapers day after day. Be that as it may, it was certainly not her place to voice these longings, and so she never had. With a begrudging sigh, Althea slid the paper clippings on her current assignment into a folio labeled Declared Missing Artifacts, England, 1893. It was straightforward enough, but it was beginning to be something of a bother. Each reported missing object was classified as either mundane or arcane, based on the Ministry's current files. The missing mundane pieces were left to the local authorities, that anything which came up as arcane was to be investigated by the ministry personnel, and either confiscated or destroyed before falling into the wrong hands for too long. That was the ministry's duty, after all, to protect the empire from the strange, unusual, and even sinister. It wasn't called the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, for nothing. Still, this particular assignment drove the monotony of her job to roost, and she could feel both her resolve and her patience wane. Althea gathered her hat, coat, and gloves on her way out of the offices, and left through the ministry's front door, which was disguised as Miggins Antiquities, finest imports from the Empire. It was a brisk and cool afternoon in early December, bright but cloudy, and Althea longed for the warm breezes of summer as she bundled up and ventured forth in search of a chestnut vendor. The tediousness of the research and the sleeplessness she had experienced lately were muddying her thoughts. She hoped the suggested walk and some warm chestnuts would do the trick. She stopped to buy the nuts from a girl about half her own age, young and thin, as a kind of appreciation for being fortunate to have a job and a roof over her head. She always tried to buy from the girls who were less fortunate. 
The chestnuts were warm in her gloved hands, and their fragrance calmed her as she walked. She glanced at the headlines on the fresh pile of papers as she passed the newsboy's corner and paused. Her current charge at the ministry was to track and classify missing artifacts and valuables, but to break the tediousness, she found herself collating the data, someone else's job, and discerning a pattern. These recent unexplained thefts were particularly of interest. Across the countryside, items of great value had gone missing, despite locked doors, locked windows, watchful servants, and other various security measures. Oi, the young boy barked. If you want to be reading it, a penny, if you please. Enterprising lad, Althea thought as she exchanged coin for paper. Her eyes read testimony she knew by heart, this time the unexplained theft occurring in Essex. The missing item from today's headline was an antique vase, said to have been once blessed by some holy man from the Far East to bring good fortune to the owner, and was a prize in the collection of... Flavoya, heard a voice nearby, interrupting Althea's reading. Flavoya, miss. She winced at the sudden intrusion of personal space and glanced at the voice's owner. No, thank you, she barely whispered, and attempted to walk on by. The old woman, or... Was it a man? Persisted, lurching after her with a stooped, unsteady gait. Flower for ya, the hunched creature repeated in a low rasp, gentle but insistent. Nice flower, nice lady. Good luck, flower. Thank you, but no, replied Althea, and tried to change directions abruptly. The beggar was directly in front of her now, waving a white rose at her, face concealed mostly by hood and scarf. Down, miss. Good luck, flower, cooed the stranger. Althea felt trapped. Whenever one was approached by a street person in this manner, it usually meant there was pickpocketing taking place. But here she stood, facing the beggar, apart from the rest of the walking crowd. She hesitated a moment more, and then reluctantly reached out to accept the pale blossom. As she touched it, the beggar jerked her, his, hands back, and the flower vanished, leaving a white dove in its place to flutter a moment anxiously before flying away. In spite of herself, Althea was surprised and somewhat astonished. She looked immediately to the beggar, but there was no one there. Of course. Pressed into her hand as consolation for the flower turned into a bird was a flyer advertising the presence of the Circus Salvatore, recently arrived in London from a national tour of Great Britain. The flyer was beautifully drawn and spoke of feats of daring and extraordinary animals, and most interesting of all, presentations of magic so astounding you will dream of it all your life. She wanted to crumple the flyer and get rid of it, nostalgia already stirring in the back of her mind as she thought of her parents, her brothers, her cousins, the Galloway family sideshow that had taken her across Europe and even America, in which she had spent so much time now in England trying to forget, even going so far as to change her name. But she couldn't stop looking at it. There was something about the words on the flyer, and of course the unusual way in which it had been delivered to her, that caught her attention. Having been something of a magician herself in her childhood, she had an eye for prestidigitation and sleight of hand, and that was the smoothest transfiguration of flower to bird she'd ever seen. She glanced at the flyer again. If she left now, she'd be a little early for the six o'clock show. Dr. Sound did want her to take some time for herself, 
didn't he? Toss the ring, win a prize! Fortunes foretold! Avoid future disasters! Gain fame and glory! Test your strength! Ladies, keep back! The encampment of the Circus Salvatore was bustling with people as the afternoon waned into the evening, torches and lanterns lit all over the place to create a welcoming glow of warmth. Althea wandered amid the crowds, quietly observing the colorful tents and striped banners, watching the usual pre-show antics, a trained dog or two, jugglers, body singers that strolled the area freely. This circus was larger than she'd expected it to be, certainly larger than what she was accustomed to. Granted, her own past had remained intimate and primarily family, although she suspected it had grown in the time since... What in the name of heaven was she doing to herself? Althea had sworn never to return, even as a rube, to watch the show. That part of her life was over. Her last rehearsal with her father had more than just closed a chapter of her life. It had taken that book and sealed it away under lock and key. And yet here she was, filing with the other rubes to find a seat within the main tent for a magic show. Instinctively, her eyes went up to the top of the tent, Her fingertips tingled lightly underneath her gloves, and a tightness welled in her throat. It was startlingly roomy inside, and the ring in the center had sawdust covering the floor. Currently, a lone figure in worn-out clothing was shuffling about the ring at a leisurely pace, scuffing the sawdust. It was, for all appearances, the beggar she had encountered earlier. The beggar sat down on the edge of the ring and took a rest— and as Althea glanced around, it appeared she was the only one who had taken notice of the curious person's presence. Once the tent seemed nearly full, the beggar stood and peered around at the audience. He, definitely a he she saw now, seemed startled by how many people were there, and stumbled face first into the sawdust. A nervous laugh rippled through the crowd, as more people took notice. The buffoon hoisted himself to his feet, dusting his clothing off frantically, but some of the particles must have entered his nose, for he reeled back as though to sneeze. This happened several times. The gesture exaggerated, but each time the beggar relaxed visibly, a false alarm. He began to shuffle towards the exit of the ring, but after only a few steps the sneeze resurfaced, and with an explosive noise and a flash of light, when the dust cleared, the beggar had vanished replaced by a tall, lean gentleman in a fine, fantastical suit. He doffed his hat gallantly and bowed low to the crowd on each side of the ring, while people applauded in startled delight. Thank you! The man called, smiling handsomely. Thank you and welcome, good people of London, to the Circus Salvatore! I am the amazing Salvatore, a name and reputation I intend to uphold tonight, I assure you. And his own laugh joined the audiences. I shall fill your minutes with magic, your hours with wonder, and your dreams with remembrances of the impossible. A small group of musicians had gathered near the tent entrance and begun to play, a merry, raucous tune to underscore the performance. The man in the suit replaced his hat upon his head smartly and set to work. 
His opening tricks were of the usual kind, leaping and floating cards from the deck, juggling with one hand, the pulling of colorful scarves from respective audience members' ears or hats or pockets. He read a few people's minds, to successful accuracy, and made a man's monocle disappear before having it reappear in someone else's hands. Althea's interest was piqued when he attempted to turn his hat inside out, and instead the hat appeared to have become a small black dog that yapped and ran circles around him while the audience laughed. She sat forward in her seat, wishing she could see more closely, wishing she'd seen how he'd turned it. It was very impressive. The magician finally caught the dog with his coat, and when he stood up to shake out the sawdust, the hat reappeared, falling to the ground from the coat as though there had been no dog at all. This man was more than a sideshow illusionist. He was an artist. A brave one, at that, to perform in an open ring like this with no assistance to slip him tools or move things about for him. Try as she might, she could see no tells or usual indicators of how he was performing the tricks. Even her trained eyes could not pick out where switches were made, what signals given. She could feel the audience's bated breath all around her. It was awe-inspiring. And now, ladies and gentlemen, my final gift for the evening. He welcomed the dancing girls into the ring. Their show was later in the evening and with them came a painted box on wheels. It appeared to be made of oversized tarot cards, each panel representing a certain meaning. From where she was, Althea could not quite make out what cards were depicted, but the sense of mysticism attached to the crate's symbols were clear. The box was large enough to contain a small person, so she suspected it would be some kind of switcheroo. This box declared the magician, as the dancing girls created a tableau around it. Is one of the nine new wonders of the world. It once belonged to a tribal shaman of China, and was sold to a rajah of India, passed down through his family, and sold again to a merchant of Africa. Around the globe it traveled, finally returning home again to China, collecting the ancient secrets of its masters, on its voyage. His expression was deeply serious. What multitude of secrets this box contains, I cannot catalogue them here. I can, however, offer you a glimpse. The magician gave a half-bow, and the dancing girl spread out a little wider into a circle, facing the box. The seriousness of his voice gave Althea goose-flesh down her arms. The crowd grew hushed and hopeful as the illusionist spread his hands wide. You have been such a gracious and a generous audience this evening that I cannot help but want to share the blessings of the box with you. I need your help, however, in order to give them to all of you. I must ask you all to concentrate. Focus your eyes on the box. Draw deep, slow breaths and focus on the box. Think of what most your heart desires. The magician removed his jacket and handed it to one of the dancers. He rolled up his shirt sleeves like a dock worker and began to carve strange letters and patterns in the air with his hands, as the audience followed his instructions. Althea, however, focused on the magician at the center of the ring. 
She furrowed her brow, trying to discern what would be achieved by this mass meditation. Perhaps it was some form of hypnosis. The musicians were playing something soft and simple and comforting. A reassuring sort of melody. Althea felt a giddy tickle at the back of her mind, one that made her eyelids sleepily drag downwards, her last sight being one of the dancing girls with her own eyes closed, their palms open and turned upward. Before she could help it, she found herself thinking of the ministry, of being promoted to field agent, of serving the queen and saving the country, of exotic travel and daring do and elaborate disguises, and for several moments forgot where she was. She opened her eyes suddenly, having dozed off, and shivered, suddenly cold. She was seated on a bench, facing the open area in the midst of the circus tents where the jugglers practiced and the clowns chattered away at one another. The crowds had lessened considerably since the afternoon, and the theatrical torches used to decorate the area were beginning to burn down, casting long shadows. Althea sat up straighter. Hadn't she just been inside the tent? The magic show. She'd been watching the magic show, hadn't she? Or had she perhaps just been thinking about it, remembering it, and had dozed off on the bench after the performance? She couldn't decide. She touched her forehead with a gloved hand, feeling a slight ache. How long had she slept? May I get you a cup of tea, miss? A gentle voice asked. The magician stood a few feet away, smiling hopefully at her. In his gloved hands was a plain porcelain cup and saucer full of fragrant, steaming tea. Althea blushed a little. He was far handsomer up close, and the tea smelled divine. She hedged silently a moment, wanting to excuse herself and go home, but wanting simultaneously to indulge in the moment. She smiled apologetically. I... she began, but he smiled wider. Please, I insist, he said, and stepped closer, holding out the saucer to her. Delicately, she accepted it. That's very kind of you, she said, looking up at him. The magician smiled cheerfully and reached into one of his coat pockets. Not at all, he replied, producing another cup and saucer from a pocket already full of what appeared to be piping hot tea. Althea stared. He raised his cup in salute. I'm just pleased to see you came to the show. Althea blinked and recalled that this impressive man had been the beggar with the flower earlier that day. It seemed years ago now. She blew softly on her tea to cool it. It was kind of you to invite me, she replied shyly. I hope I wasn't rude. Hardly, my dear, hardly. It is I who should apologize. I do not mean to seem as though I am following you about. When I saw you this afternoon, you seemed quite down, and I thought a sleight of hand might cheer you. When I saw you in the audience, I thought I'd introduce myself. His voice was much gentler and younger now that he wasn't putting on a show for a crowd, Althea noticed. He had a distinctly Mediterranean hue to his skin and hair, but his voice was quite English, and even his mannerisms were a bit subdued for someone who was supposedly from Italy. He was charming without meaning to be, and Althea liked him. "'It's a pleasure to meet you, signore,' she murmured politely. He laughed brightly at this. <laughs> "'No, no, please,' he corrected her. "'Not signore. My father was signore.' 
And my grandfather, not me. He gave her a rakish wink as he added, My name isn't really Salvatore, either. That was my father's name, and it stuck with the circus. My mother was English, so don't be fooled. I'm Enzo. He finished with a smile. Enzo, she repeated somewhat dubiously. Well, he amended, Lorenzo, but Enzo to my friends. She smiled a little at this, and thought what an interesting coincidence it was that he was born into a circus way as she had been. She sipped the tea and looked away from him so as not to stare. It was a marvelous show, she told him. I'm glad I came. So am I, agreed Enzo, as she took another sip. She glanced at him sideways. He seemed to blush and sputter a moment. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad you liked the show, of course. He stammered. Does the circus travel a great deal? She asked. The flyer mentioned a national tour. Enzo nodded enthusiastically. Oh, yes, indeed. All over the place we've been. Seen plenty of wonderful things and met interesting people. Do you like to travel? She raised her eyebrows at him, and he stammered again. I, ah, uh, that is. You aren't from London originally, are you? She shook her head. I was born in Ireland, she told him, surprised to find herself sharing that. Best stick to vague details, knowing how circus folk loved to gossip. She looked up at him, masking her thoughts with a pleasant expression. But I don't remember it at all. Lived here my whole life. I'd love to see the world, though. Still have your accent, though, he said appreciatively, and she felt her cheeks warm. No, don't look like that, he said. I like it. And don't trouble yourself about seeing the world. You're young yet. You'll get your chance to see everything in the world, if you want it enough. She took a sip of her tea. I doubt it. A young, lovely, smart creature such as yourself could do anything she pleases. Enzo declared gallantly. Althea looked at him in surprise, and saw him blush for certain now. You don't know a thing about me, she told him. I know a little about you. If only just from speaking to you these short minutes. I know that you are young from your stature and apparent health. I know that you are lovely from your looks and your gentle modesty. I know that you are smart, for you are aware of yourself, and are not content with your current situation. Your desire to travel betrays you there, I'm afraid. Althea looked amazed and could not speak. She instead turned her attention to the tea. I should very much like it. Enzo began hopefully. If you'd come back to the circus again. We have a few more shows before we depart for our next venues, and if it's not too inconvenient, I should like to see you again. So he was flirting with her. His offstage manner was much more timid than that of his onstage persona, and he was nothing but kind and polite. She did not know what to say at first, but after a few moments, she gave him a faint smile. I might find myself some time to come back tomorrow, she said slowly. When does the circus depart? When I say it does, replied Enzo merrily. Amid the chaotic piles of information on her desk the next morning, Althea found a fresh newspaper waiting for her, with a smaller headline to one side that immediately pulled her focus. Missing family heirloom said to be cursed. The following text described a centuries-old necklace owned by the family of Sir Philip Markham of Kent, a 
priceless piece bearing rubies and emeralds that had been passed down for generations. According to the family, the necklace was kept in a locked safe due to its apparently haunted nature. It was said that anyone who was not pure of heart and intent that wore the thing died tragically soon after. The other portion of the curse was that, if it were sold, the family would suffer beyond imaginings. Thus, the Markhams had kept it locked away, hidden and safe until now. Something about this tale struck Althea. Why? She began jotting down notes, but her pen ceased abruptly. Beside the curse of the Markham necklace, called another bold header. Circus pleases Kent crowds for the first time. It was about the Circus Salvatore, which had performed in Kent recently. The circus had been where the stolen item originated. She turned in her chair to the coat hanging on the rack behind her. The paper from yesterday had been folded into her left pocket. The fold was solely on the theft that initially caught her eye, a priceless vase, second Ming dynasty from the Everton estate. Then she unfurled the paper, and it trembled slightly in her hands. Circus Salvatore amazes Essex for four nights. Althea felt dizzy as an idea began to dawn on her, her fingers flipping through her notes and older papers collected. With every confirmation, the pull of the circus last night made more sense to her. She had made this connection, just not consciously, and in the ranks of Circus Salvatore she knew only one possessing the ability to make impossible things happen, such as retrieving something from a locked safe without unlocking it, such as lifting a priceless heirloom from a secured room, such as... Could Enzo? Charming, friendly, gentlemanly Enzo be a thief? With a deep breath, Althea stood and headed for Dr. Sound's office, carrying her notes and a few primary source examples with her. She might not be a field agent, but she'd be damned if she couldn't check facts faster than anyone else in the ministry and have something to show for it. And did she now have something to show, Dr. Sound? She had just reached Chillingworth's desk when the office door opened suddenly. Sound looked surprised to see her. Ah, Galway! Feeling better, are we? Yes, she answered quickly. Thank you, Director. If you have a moment, I have something important to share with you. She held up the file, gathering her courage. Oh, said Sound, dimly distracted. I see. Well, uh, certainly I can spare a moment. Come in, come in. Althea followed him in, closing the door behind her, and held out her file to him. I took yesterday to clear my head, she told him, and it led me to something of a discovery, sir. Oh? Indeed. I went to the circus yesterday, sir, and in reviewing the paper clippings from the missing objects file of this year, the same circus is mentioned in every single paper we've catalogued that also mentions the missing items. Sound took the file while she held her breath. He flipped through, his brow lightly furrowed, his eyes glancing over the pages. A striking coincidence, he said finally. Very striking. But I'm not entirely certain of what precisely you are telling me, Galway. I am telling you, Althea said with a sudden burst of confidence. 
that there is a direct correlation between the missing items and the Circus Salvatore tour, which at this moment is performing here in London. Dr. Sound let his eyes fall to the paperwork again, and Althea felt a pang of anxiety. Had she gone too far? After what seemed to be an eternity, Dr. Sound set the papers down on the desk and folded his hands, looking squarely at her. Galway, he said gently, when did you reach this conclusion? It was actually more of an observation than a clear conclusion, but in for a penny. Just now, sir. And how long did you consider the circumstances before presenting me with your findings? Not long, sir. I wanted you to know right away, so you can take appropriate action. That's a very forward-thinking of you, Sound said. But how closely did you read these clippings? Darwin, while there is a correlation, did you look at the dates? How could the circus be responsible for these thefts when they weren't even in the county at the time of the thefts? Althea stared, her cheeks burning. There's a considerable amount of skill at this circus, director. The illusionist in particular is vastly talented and... Now, Galway! The illusionist is an exceptional hypnotist. But there is more at work here. His abilities... Manipulate time itself, granting him the ability to return to his bells and whistles and banners and Big Top after making off with the local treasure, completely undetected? Her evidence, originally a stone fortress, began to topple like a house of cards. Sir, these people are immensely capable of... Galway, please. He spoke softly, motioning to the clippings in front of him. You have a compelling theory, but no. She couldn't stop the words. Damn it, you don't know these people like I do. She had been in his office before. She had never noticed the clock. The calm in his voice chilled her. I believe we are done here, Galway. Althea gave a tiny, quick curtsy but stopped just short of the door when the director addressed her. Miss Galway, this case file, considering you are not a field agent, is impressive, very thorough, and it does give me pause. But without proper evidence, or even eyewitness accounts, I cannot warrant action. And as you are not a field agent, you cannot pursue this matter any further. You are not trained for any further investigation apart from logistics he said, indicating her notes. Thank you for your hard work in this matter. But unless I have something more concrete, I am unable to act. He looked down at the report for a moment, and then tucked it away into a drawer of the desk. He glanced at her as he reached for another file. That'll be all on this matter, Galway, he said lightly. Now do be kind and bring the McTeague trolley round when you get a moment. My tea has gone cold. Althea slowly... Numbly left the office in silence. She entered the lift and descended back to her awaiting desk and to the tea trolley that awaited her attention. When does the circus leave? She had asked. When I say it does, he had replied. Her hand froze as she reached for the McTeague. Sound wanted something more concrete. Fine. 
she took her coat, scarf, hat, and gloves from the coat closet and began to layer them on as she headed through Miggins' antiquities and out the front door, taking a deep breath of the crisp, cold air as she did. The circus stirred with an early afternoon energy that unearthed forgotten anticipation in Althea. This was the time when performers would make final preparations, when the ringmaster would review the order of acts, when the last changes would be made. She stood still a moment, breathing deep and getting her bearings. She gave her humble disguise one final look, and then walked into the carnival, assuming the role of a curious patron. After a moment... She spotted a squattish sort of man stomping across the way towards a knot of smaller tents off to the right. He did not appear to be in costume, but he certainly looked like a circus employee. His eyebrows and beard were singed and blackened. The cannon operator, perhaps? Something to do with fire. Regardless, he seemed to be heading the way she wanted to go, so she took up a quick pace to follow him back behind the main tents. When he glanced back and saw her, he stopped abruptly. Signora, the big top is over there, he informed her gruffly, pointing back the way they'd come. I know, she said, putting on a lower London voice. Sure I know. I ain't looking for the big top, am I? Supposed to bring word to the amazing Salvatore, ain't I? Got a message for him, sweetie. She put her hands on her hips and tipped her head at him. Where's his highness's tent, then? The dwarfish man looked her up and down then flapped his hand dismissively. that away, he said, pointing. Big black star on a tent. You cannot miss it. And he stomped off in a different direction, muttering something about tarts throwing themselves at the amazing Salvatore. Althea had only made it a few steps before music from inside the big top commenced. The show was underway. Soon crowds would gather, and Enzo would be on stage. At last she found a tent larger than the others, with a black fabric star pinned to the outside. She ducked behind it, listening to see if it was occupied. Even with the silence, Althea peeked through the tent flap before entering. The tent bore a cot and some personal items, a mirror, a chest of drawers, a large steamer trunk with the name Salvatore in brass letters near the lock. It's his circus, Althea thought. If someone in his company is stealing, he'll know about it. Pulling her pocket knife from her boot, she tested the blade in the lock opening, one of the skills she had promised herself she would never call upon again. Her brow furrowed after her moment's regret. This was a far more complicated padlock than she had believed. A good illusionist keeps only what was necessary for their illusions. The key must be here, somewhere. Althea put the knife handle in her teeth, opened the top drawer in the vanity, and found only combs, grease paint, and powder. The next drawer revealed legal-looking documents. A third revealed a sewing kit and scraps of fabric. The fourth presented her with an empty space. She carefully felt the sides of the drawer with her gloved fingertips. There was a false bottom. Althea removed it slowly to find a book lying inside the compartment. She glanced over her shoulder at the muffled cheers of the afternoon crowd perhaps reacting to the acrobatic turns and antics of the clowns in the main tent. Althea lifted the book and examined it. The title on the spine shone in faded gold leaf against the dark green binding. Shakespeare's Julius Caesar? Althea frowned. 
Why did Enzo choose to hide this play? It seemed random. One of the pages was folded the tiniest bit on the corner, so Althea opened to that page. An insert was stuck between the pages here, a small folded paper with ink illustration on it. The image was familiar to her, but on turning it over and upside down, the image came into focus. She felt her jaw drop. She remembered this seal in her orientation with the Ministry. This was the seal of the House of Usher. Her eyes returned to the Bard's work, and that was when she noticed its pages were littered with underlined words, circled phrases, and strange symbols in the margins. A codebook? Quickly, she replaced the false bottom in the drawer and slid the book into the pocket of her dress. She peered out the tent flap cautiously, studying the throng moving back and forth from tent to tent, act to act. All she had to do was get back to the ministry without being caught. Simple. She slid her knife hand higher up her sleeve and pushed out of the tent, head ducked, walking towards the collected patrons. She tried to recall the brief moments of conversation the field agents would tell. Althea tried not to move too quickly, nor too slowly. She could see the entrance, so long as no one stopped her. The man appeared from nowhere, suddenly blocking her escape. She moved sideways to go around him, but as he did the same, she looked up immediately and felt her stomach drop. It was Enzo. Oh, it's you! He smiled brightly. You came back after all. Althea took a step back, quickly assuming the shy persona of the night before. I did. I... It came too late. She stammered, nodding at the tent. I missed the show. Enzo smiled and waved his hands emphatically. That's all right. I'm pleased to see you again. He paused, studying the tattered outfit she wore, a far cry from the smart outfit she'd been wearing the previous night. Althea stood a little straighter. I was wondering, and she needed to wonder faster. She had to get out of this carnival. Now. She was facing him alone on his own territory. You see, I have... A friend I was hoping you'd be so good as to meet. Told her how amazing the show was, she added. Enzo raised his brow. Oh, really? He seemed embarrassed by praise. Althea nodded. Yes, she would be most delighted to meet you. Enzo's smile changed a little, twisting almost sadly as he looked down at her. Althea fought back the urge to run. This charming, handsome man she had truly enjoyed meeting the previous day was undoubtedly linked to the nefarious House of Usher. If she could get him to agree to meet her and her friend somewhere later, it would give her enough time to get out and back to the Ministry. That's kind of you, Enzo was saying. To tell others about the show? Well, it's a wondrous show, Althea insisted. She tightened her grip on the sleeve where the pocket knife remained hidden. Enzo shrugged, his smile still unsettling her. I suppose I could make a little time for the friend of a lovely Irish rose, he replied sweetly. He looked past her over her shoulder towards the main area of the circus where the other civilians were roaming the sideshow and the menagerie. Is she here with you now? he asked, and it seemed that his eyes fixed on someone in particular. In spite of herself, Althea turned to glance behind her as though her friend were waiting. No she replied. She said she'd be along later. She, He was on her before she had even turned her head back around. 
One hand covered her mouth, the other holding a knife, larger than hers, of course, to her neck. Althea did not scream, but her body was taut as a bowstring, and she stared back at him. His face had taken on a hunted, unhappy sort of expression, ferocious but somehow sad, as he removed his hand from her mouth. Who are you? He said, his voice low. You're wearing a disguise. You were sneaking around in my tent. Tell me who you are. Althea could only stare at him, willing him not to hurt her and praying that someone would come by and stop this from happening. Tell me. He insisted, more gruffly. Tell me and I won't hurt you. You asked me to come back. She mumbled through his hand and was surprised by how calm she sounded. You wanted me to come back. What were you looking for? Much like in Sound's office, she couldn't stop the words. Only someone who has something to hide says something like that. His eyes widened. That struck a chord. What do you want? The box. I want to know the trick. What? He searched her face, his brow wrinkling. A magician never reveals- You're no magician, she told him quietly. Best trick I've ever seen. And I've been turning cards to fish and flowers to birds since I was four. Enzo's eyes flickered. I want to know how you did your last trick. You make the audience hope. For what? I can't. I, I can't tell you. He said reluctantly. Even if you're a fellow illusionist. You might want to tell me, said Althea. Not simply because I really want to know. But also because I've a knife too. And it's resting on your codpiece. His eyes shot wide in surprise as Althea pressed her blade against him. So go on, she told him. Cut my throat. I'll give you a good slice in return. Your choice. Slowly, his knife blade inched away from her skin. Hers did not leave the fabric of his trousers. He inclined his head slightly, arching an eyebrow. Althea took a breath and then stepped away. The box. He began. Then he shook his head and started again. Its history is hardly a tale of fantasy. It has been around the world, feeding on psycho-etheric waves. The breathing and wishing and all that is just focus, like meditation. It charges the box. And what does it do with the energy? Althea asked, shifting the little knife in her hand. You're not a copper, are you? No, she said, tipping her head back. I'm the one asking the questions. You say the box feeds on psycho... Psycho-etheric waves. The box stores it. He answered, taking half a step backwards. For what? I don't know. He blurted. At least, I don't know entirely how it stores this energy. But I do understand what it does for me. Which is... She asked, and just like that he vanished, his form scattering before her like dandelion seeds catching a strong summer's breeze. The hand came from behind her, clamping around her wrist, his grip impressive. Enzo's other arm attempted to grab the knife, but Althea was already moving, her own acrobatics carrying her under his arm and placing her behind him. With a quick pull, she was free, and she used this freedom to strike him hard against the back of his knee. He sank down to the ground, granting her knife access to his neck. And here I thought you were just a little Irish rose. Enzo whispered sadly. Enzo, please, she urged him, pushing the blade deeper against his flesh. We have both been lying to one another from the beginning, 
haven't we? I beg your pardon. Again, he disappeared, his form slipping. No, he became a shadow. And appeared to her right side, the knife hand now in his grasp while another hand took hold of her chin. Althea gasped, feeling every part of her skin tingle, a strange desire welling up in her as goose flesh rippled along her arms. Despite everything about the situation, the longer she looked into his eyes, the more she wanted him. Well, not lying at time. He cooed. You want to know what the box does? It records memories, secrets, desires, and then allows me access to them. You want to make such a good impression on your superiors that... His words faded, and his eyes flared with a strange emerald glow. Really? You are a woman of many secrets, aren't you? His smile was no longer charming. Let's see what else I discover the deeper I go. Althea's eyes widened, her free hand lightly wrapping the copy of Julius Caesar in her pocket. Et tu, Brute? A brilliant white light silently enveloped her, and she felt herself fall. She was weightless, her vision blurry, wind rushing through her ears. Althea stretched out her arms, and out from this brilliance came her father. This time, her hands slapped against his forearms hard, the slap of palms meeting skin ringing in her ears like a church bell. She looked up and saw him looking at her, his eyes so brilliant. That's my girl. I've got you, Alita, he said to her his smile almost as bright as the light around them. I've got you. Then the light receded, and looming over her, his arms wrapped around her as men and women gathered around them both. I've got you! Dr. Sound assured her. I've got you! She felt tears now. Her words sounded so distant. Father, I did it. Althea sat in Sound's office, the clock continuing to count the seconds as he reviewed her full account of the events. It had been two days since the incident at the circus, and she was still dazed. She remained exhausted, the nervousness and anxiety regarding Sound's approval coupled with the strange illusion of making the catch with her father haunting her. Too much had happened too quickly. The emotional drain presently gave her an appearance of being quite calm. Interesting design that device Axelrod used at the circus. First field test, he tells me now. Some sort of energy field that creates a web-like snare, much as a hunter might use to catch birds in the wild. Bloody bright, its initial burst. Think I'm still seeing spots. Yes, sir, she muttered. I appreciate your patience on this, Galway. Quite a bit of business you have crocked up this week, as I'm sure you're partly aware. He said cheerily. But I did want to speak to you about your report. Althea finally met his gaze. Her skin prickled with heat as he continued. This crate that... Dr. Sound flipped several sheets forward and nodded. Feeds on psychoetheric waves under the direction of a symbiote. Has proven to possess quite the find. So has that code book. 
Our archivist has been happy as Larry. Althea nodded, idly wondering who Larry was. Perhaps a new partner for the archivist? He looked up, interlocking his fingers. Now, I know when we spoke last. I reminded you that you were not a field agent, and I am confident you understood me well in that matter. In spite of my prior warnings, you did bring this connection to my attention, and, in the field, showed remarkable instincts and significant courage. He cleared his throat. Of course, there is something to be said about the luck of the Irish. Althea stared at him, her tired brain having a hard time keeping up with him. What was he saying? Exceptional work. He closed the case file. You start training on Monday. She blinked. Training? For what? Deep cover, Galway, if you accept the position. We have reason to believe the House of Usher is planning something in China. In this operation, you will be our eyes and ears. Your extraordinary ability to recall and synthesize information will do you credit in researching this mission, and your clear flair for <clears throat> theatrics will be useful as well. Althea felt her breath catch in her throat as sound handed her a thick folio of papers. You have a considerable amount of studying to do. This, Althea Galway, is an engineer's apprentice on the airship Guy Fawkes. To play a Clankerton, you'll have to learn the ins and outs of airship engineering. Better get started, don't you think? Althea rose, hugging the folio to her chest. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Allison Grauer is a writer and actor, currently living, writing, and performing in Chicago, Illinois. She has a smattering of short stories and two novels in rewrites, but a trick of strong imagination is her first professional sale of fiction. She is a staff writer for several blogs, including Dr. Fantastique's Show of Wonders, and these days she plays the ukulele whenever she has a scrap of free time. She can be found on Twitter at Dreams to Become. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, pre-audio copy of The Janus Affair, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel, or order Phoenix Rising, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel from your favorite bookstore, or online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, the iBookstore, or the Science Fiction Book Club. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Koru Studios, Harper Voyager Production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.